Hello, dear listener. Maddie here again with a sneaky little message. After this week's episode, we are going to have a brief mid-season break. But don't worry. To fill the time, on Monday the 12th of April, we will be releasing an extra special secret bonus to hold you over until normal episodes continue. But I won't tell you what it is. Like all of Little Street's secrets, you will have to be patient and wait to find out. And if you simply must have more and can't go on without us, you're in luck. If there are a few coins burning holes in your pockets, you can use them to support us via our Patreon. Our supporters receive extra special exclusive bonuses such as access to Patreon-exclusive channels in our Discord, rough-cut, uncensored bloopers, a speed draw of the designing of our logo, and, at the 5 euro level, an ongoing series of interviews with the people who make this show happen. Your support will go to the people who create the stories you love, and allow us to fund making our content even better. We would really appreciate it if you check out patreon.com forward slash neighbourlypod. Now, enjoy the episode! Welcome to Neighborly. Out of Hours. House number 10, Little Street. The slap of bare feet upon sterile flooring. Blood pounding in his ears, so loud he can barely hear his own gasping breaths. They haven't realized yet, but they will within moments. The other guard will return and... There's a shout, and suddenly the blare of an alarm rips through the facility. It takes every last bit of energy to keep himself moving. He knows the route. He was here for so long before his workplace became his prison, he could walk it with his eyes closed if needs be, but he has to run. He has to keep his eyes open and his feet moving, and it hurts to breathe, but he can't stop. Can't let them catch him. The shouts behind him get louder. They know which way he's going. They must be able to see him on the CCTV, must be radioing each other about his position. He can't let them stop him. He can't. Even if that means using what they did to him. The first guard to attempt to cut him off is thrown bodily against a wall, their blood literally boiling as he screams in rage and desperation. The next chokes on their own spittle as they bark at him to stop right there! The next freezes and does not move again. He's so close. His head is throbbing with the merging rhythm of his pounding footprints and the wailing alarm, but he can't let the pain stop him. One more corner, one more door, and he's out of the main block. He just has to keep going. Get over the fence and into the river. Once he's in the water, it can take him away, far away, and he can be free. Finally, finally free. Dr. Coleridge Ripner moved into number 10 Little Street just under a year ago. He is a conventionally attractive man, with dark eyes and darker curls, and a soft smile that he offers to almost all he sees. 
A faint tremor tickles at his dominant hand, and beneath the various suits he tends to wear there sits a faint patina of scarring that he will not explain. Not to you, at least. He is a man of money, though you wouldn't think it looking at his abode. Number 10 is one of the smaller houses on Little Street, and its exterior, while pleasant to look at, is not the sort you'd associate with a man like him. The driveway is short and pebbled, with pretty little weeds that poke up between the stones. The front garden is fairly disheveled, sprinkled with various flowers and awash with insects thoroughfare, though in a way that makes it seem inviting rather than derelict. The aging door does not creak as it is opened and closed, opened and closed. It is silent, though it does occasionally get a little... stuck. Within, the once-carpeted floors have been stripped back to the original wooden panelling that groans ever so slightly under the weight of the years. Double glazing sits contentedly in the old window frames that adorn each room, flanked by curtains that have seen a fair amount of use. The windows are not the only thing in the house made up of varying ages. Each room is an eclectic mix of new and old, recently built bookcases stacked with aging tomes, faded vinyl sleeves leaning against a shiny new record player. A modern model globe sat atop a small pile of old-style travel cases. Coleridge likes to collect things that interest him, and age matters not. That is not to say that the house is messy, though. No, no. Though busy, it is kept clean and tidy. There is only one room that does not fit the template of the others, one of the larger ones in the back of the house. But we'll get to that later. Today, the morning begins as it frequently does for Dr. Ripner. Shocked awake by a familiar nightmare, there is a moment of sheer panic before he recognizes the white above him to be the Artex ceiling of his bedroom, rather than the cold panelling of governmental testing facilities. He stares at the bobbled paint, faintly visible in the early morning sunlight that creeps through the cracks in the curtains, and reminds himself that it's over now. He escaped. He's free. He spends a short while laying there, repeatedly clenching a trembling hand as he counts out loud. One hundred, ninety-seven, ninety-four, ninety-one. He continues in threes, all the way down to one, until his breathing is once again calm. He doesn't bother trying to get back to sleep, he knows there's very little point. A few more hours is not worth reliving his torture. With a familiar resigned sigh, he forces himself up into a sit, dragging his hands down his face and wondering if, today, he at least got more than five hours of sleep. The blinding light of his phone screen informs him that he did not, and he tosses the thing back on his bedside table, swinging his legs off the bed and letting his feet thump onto the softly carpeted floor. It takes another few minutes for him to actually convince himself to stand up, but eventually he does. Despite it being so early, he takes his medication, knowing he's up at the same time most days, so he might as well. A couple of capsules, swallowed with the dregs of water from the night before. A pump of gel on each arm, smeared onto the skin as he heads out of his room. Eventually he put himself on injections, he tells himself. After all, as long as he's the one holding the needle, it's fine. But for now, gel is just easier, more routine. First stop is the kitchen. 
He pads down the stairs, stretching to ward off the stiffness gained from another poor night's rest. When a soft whistle calls forth no disgruntled ball of fur, he simply fills one of the bowls on the floor with food, before swiping up the other bowl and popping it under the already running tap. He fills it with water, then replaces its spot on the sink with a teapot. Fruit tea this morning, he thinks. Tap off, teapot on the side. He spoons some loose-leaf tea into the pot and gives it a quick stir before leaving it to warm itself, water stirring constantly. Teacup, saucer. His morning routine continues until he finds himself sat in the garden, sipping his drink and watching the bees traverse the way from hive to flower and back. He's been meaning to sketch the little house that the bees have made their own since he moved in. Perhaps he'll get round to it soon, though he's barely drawn a thing since... Well, since before everything. It's a curious thing. An old birdhouse, shaped rather like an L if looked at from above, with a facade that matches one of the houses further down the road. It and the bees within came with the house itself, though he's never thought to be rid of it. It's not doing any harm after all. Though the birds that perch upon it daily, ignoring the bees and seemingly watching his house, are occasionally disconcerting. Luckily for him, though, Angelo does well at chasing them off most days. Ah, uh, speak of the devil. Angelo makes his presence known by leaping off the fence and deftly landing on the floor beside the doctor's chair. Coleridge jolts, almost spills his tea, and then offers Angelo a long-suffering look. You can be a right bastard sometimes, you know that? He receives a haughty meow in response, and then Angelo retires into the house for his breakfast. Within ten minutes, he's back and clambering his way onto his human's lap to sit and wait for the day to begin proper. Dr. Rickner's tea stays warm, as it always does, until he decides it's time to move. By now, the nearby bakery will have opened, and he makes a point of popping in there most mornings. Angelo is subjected to a short, intense bout of scritches and kisses, and barely ten seconds pass before he decides that's enough, thank you, and slinks his way off the warm lap to find somewhere a little less loving to sleep. A quick shower is needed before he heads out, a last-ditch attempt to rid himself of the fatigue he's regained by sitting still for a few hours. It doesn't completely work, of course. There's always that little part of his brain that begs him not to open his eyes again after a particularly heavy blink. But by the time he tells the water to stop and begins drying himself, he is at least feeling a little more refreshed. He slips on a suit, then reconsiders given the mild weather and shucks off his jacket, replacing it with a light waistcoat. It's one of his favourites. The peacock on the back is embroidered in such a way that the tail feathers remind him of roiling waves. A little fancy for a short jaunt to the shops and his appointment later, but wearing it always makes him feel just a touch more grounded and that is definitely needed after such a night. The walk to the bakery is short and uneventful. A light smile and a greeting nod are offered to the few people he passes. There's a creature on the wall that he, incorrectly, assumes to be a cat, and he greets the thing with a soft scratch between its ears before continuing on his way. It watches him leave, and then sits to clean itself. Kira, the lovely lady who runs the bakery greets him as she usually does, and they make idle small talk about their well-being as she collects together his usual order. He pays with a note and tells her to keep the change. 
She lightly rebukes his offer, as she always does, but he insists and then leaves with a nod and a smile and the promise to return soon. He bumps into one of his neighbours from number 14 on his way back to his home, and they arrange a time to pick up his medication. Can't find them anywhere, the captain tells him, and Dr. Ripner assures him that an emergency supply will be waiting for him when he visits later that day. Then it's home again, to nibble at those freshly baked goods he hasn't already eaten on his way from bakery to house. With a few hours to spare between running home and needing to leave for his weekly appointment, he sets some music to play from one of his rooms and gets started on food preparation for dinner. The sounds created by his record player float through the house like a leaf on water and he lets himself sway along to the music as Angelo complains about the lack of scraps he's being offered. He'll get a bowlful later, he knows this, but that won't stop him from wanting it now, right now! The howling furball in question is swept into his arms before he heads out again. A ritual the cat is used to, obviously. He begrudgingly lets his human snuffle at his fur and breathe deeply against his back, and only lets out a softly disgruntled meow once he is finally placed back upon the floor. The door sticks, and Coleridge has to yank it closed behind him. The appointment goes as it usually does. Dr. Justin Casey, my parents had a terrible sense of humour, hands him a glass of water and Coleridge sits in the chair he is offered. They discuss his week, though they barely touch upon what nightmares have been bothering him since last they met. They talk for the full hour, but not really about anything he knows he should be trying to sort through. Vague descriptions and metaphors are all that he offers as they converse. Funny, isn't it? How people can talk for so long and yet say nothing at all. Throughout the session, he alternates between clasping at the steadily emptying glass in his tremor-ridden hand, cursing it for never stilling, and fiddling with the buttons on his waistcoat as he stoically ignores the memories creeping in from the back of his mind. Each word is chosen carefully as he talks, and he lets out non-committal hums every time Dr. Casey tells him they'll reach a place of trust eventually. One day, he is told, You'll be able to talk openly, but I shan't push you. We go at whatever rate you are comfortable with. He doubts that that trust will come. And even if it did, where would he start? University and his studies, finally getting his PhD? The agent stood at his door, offering him a job with a salary that he could not refuse? His excitement at finally doing something good with his life, only to find out too late that it was not good that he was doing? trying to protest their work, and then having the work turned against him. Being a prisoner, tortured and experimented on. What he had to do to escape. The running, the hiding, and not settling for years until he finally found Little Street. A normal person would just start at the beginning, but the beginning was a long time ago. Coleridge shakes his hand as he steps out of the door, and assures him he'll be in touch if he needs to talk during the week. He won't, of course, but the opera is there. He probably won't even glance at the contact in his phone labelled Casey, but he'll pretend to consider it if it keeps his therapist happy. By the time he reaches Little Street, he has shrugged off most of the extra uncertainty that surrounds him in a session, and has resumed the confident politeness of Dr. Ripner, pretending all is fine in the world able to deal with whatever is thrown at him, though not particularly equipped to deal with whatever he is thrown at.
The door latch meets its assigned space with a soft click, and his cheek meets the wall with a resounding smack. For a moment, all he can do is freeze. He's always told himself he'd fight like hell to get away when they finally found him. But now both his fight and flight responses seem to have abandoned him, much like whatever calm he had felt moments before. Hot panic warms his cheeks and tightens his chest, and a shuddering inhale is the most he can manage as he tenses, readying himself for the sharp scratch of a needle in his back, a short period of peaceful oblivion, and then for the horrors to begin again. How could he be so stupid to think he could get away, to think he could run and not even change his damn name, to think he could stay in one place for as long as he had? They'd found him, it was over, they were going to take him back there, and... Are you the doctor? The voice hissing in his ears shocks him out of his panic and grounds him back in the moment. They wouldn't ask that, they would know. It's not them. He's safe. The breath that leaves him is so relieved it's very nearly a sob, and he hastily forces himself to nod. You patch people up. Another nod in confirmation. Though no words, as he is too busy battling to regain control of his breathing. He's safe. By the sounds of it, his attacker is just a patient. No questions asked? He inhales slowly. No questions asked. Fingers tighten upon his collar as he is tugged away from the wall. He raises his hands in a placating motion and obediently lets his visitor turn him around. Where to? He starts walking, silently hoping whoever this is isn't bleeding too heavily. Getting blood out of wood is akin to getting red wine out of a cream carpet, and the last thing he needs is more work to do. They reach a locked door and he slowly slips his hand into his pocket so that he can reach the key explaining what he's doing as he does so that the man behind him does not think he's trying something. The room Dr. Ripner unlocks is at the back of the house. See, I told you we'd get to it later, and he lets his guest usher him in. They are met with the sight of an exceedingly pristine medical treatment room, a complete juxtaposition to the rest of the house. In this room, there is nary an instrument out of place. The equipment that lives within this little laboratory is obviously state-of-the-art and expensive, well-used, but well-cared for. Dr. Ripner politely suggests his guest release him and sit down upon the examination table in the centre of the room, and it takes a good few moments of deliberation before such a thing happens. He slips off his waistcoat and hangs it on a chrome coat stand by the door, but not before quickly inspecting it for telltale signs of violence. Once happy, it's fine. He just shoves his face against it and breathes a sigh of relief. The last thing he needs is his most comforting possession to be ruined, as well as his afternoon. He is only aware that he is being watched when a distrusting voice cuts across his calm. What are you doing? It takes a lot not to snipe back at the man. A man broke into my house and pinned me against a wall. He instead grumbles, pulling in a final calming breath before rolling up his sleeves and moving to wash his hands. Forgive me if I need to take a moment. Nitrile gloves snap on and he gets to work. His patient doesn't offer a name, and he does not ask for one as he peels back the rudimentary dressing that has been clasped to the wound. It only takes one or two suspicious glances aimed at him before he offers to talk the man through his actions, fully understanding the distrust of those in a position to either help or hurt you. He doesn't look him directly in the face as he asks. 
and said, watching out of the corner of his eye, It's obvious that he does not want to be known, and Coleridge knows better than to tempt fate. As he administers his care, he actively ignores his patient's curious gaze upon his scarred forearms. It is not something he particularly wants to talk about, now or ever, and he hopes they are not brought up. I scared you. It is a statement rather than a question, and Coleridge lets out a bitter huff of a laugh. He's angry, but more at himself for his lack of immediate action. What was the point in spending years learning to control what he could do when his body would just betray him at the earliest convenience? You startled me. His attempt to brush it off with an idle shrug fails, and rather spectacularly given the expression on his guest's face. Exaggerated startle response, or whatever it's called. The doctor rolls his eyes and hopes that the yes, thank you, you're not my therapist is implicit in the gesture. Get that at around the time you got those scars. And there it is. Now he lifts his head and gives a look. He is obviously unwilling to comment on the nature of his scars, and his expression this time makes that abundantly clear. The look is met with a raised brow, and he shakes his head minutely before returning to his work. Quiet falls once more. Breaths. The soft clink of medical implements against a table. And the occasional pained hiss from his patient is all there is. Until the door goes. Damn it. In all the excitement, He's forgotten about the collection. Before he can even begin to turn towards the sound, he finds his arm in a vice-like grip, his guest obviously not keen on the idea of him leaving. You're not answering it. He's just collecting his medication. I don't care! Indignance flares within Cole, and something within the house gurgles. His guest jumps. What was that? A wry smile tugs at his lips. Old pipes, Coleridge assures, as he tempers his annoyance, lest they find themselves a little tamper than they would perhaps like. He snatches his arm from the man's hold and straightens. You're welcome to your privacy. If you want no one to know you're here, then you're entitled to that. But if you believe for a single second that I will let you stop me from tending to others in my care then I'm afraid you're sorely mistaken. Without waiting for a response, he strips off his bloodied gloves and marches towards the front of the house. He half expects the man to follow, and settles himself to lurk behind the door, scalpel in hand to keep Coleridge in check, and is pleasantly surprised when he is able to open the front door without issue. The interaction with his neighbour is short. He hands a bottle to the captain, and the captain, in turn, offers a paper bag. Something for your collection, he is told, for my latest trip. He gives his thanks and retires back into the house. The bag is snatched from his hand as soon as he returns to his patient. Having expected such a reaction, he allows the bag to be rifled through without argument. His patient offers a confused look in his direction and demands an explanation. I do not take payment for the treatment I give. 
Coleridge begins as he washes his hands, dons a fresh pair of gloves, and returns to his work, softly wishing the day to conclude so that he might collapse into bed once more. I don't need the money. Occasionally, though, I have patients who would like to reimburse me in some way. The captain is an adventurer, and will often give me trinkets of some sort as a thank you for my help. He knows that I like to collect things. Why? He avoids shrugging, lest he nudge the wound before him. This stranger does not have the right to know that owning things makes him feel like a human again, rather than just the experiment he was forced to be. I just do. He has looked at curiously, and he looks back. Yes? There is a moment of stillness before the man shakes his head and looks away. You're a strange one, you know that? He tells the wall. Hmm, Coleridge hums. And yet I'm not the one breaking into people's houses. This earns him a short laugh, and his lips quirk in a soft smile in response. Perhaps it's not all bad. Dr. Ripner's fatigue is slowly creeping upon him again by the time he finishes his work, and, with one last promise of secrecy, sees off the man who has demanded his attention. With the front door locked, he leans against the examination table for a few minutes, rubbing at his eyes until he sees stars. They fade, and he stands once more. With his patient now gone, it is time to clean. There is a diary that is kept in a hidden compartment in one of the metal drawers within the room. Once Coleridge has finished sanitizing his workstations, he pulls it out, and makes a note of the injuries he had witnessed. He writes a short description of the treatment he administered, and jots down a guess as to how the wounds were inflicted. He is sure not to add any information that could identify his patient. He rereads it twice to be sure of his notes, and then hides it away once more. Time to find Angelo, he decides, and rediscover the comfort of a furiously purring feline and a lovely meal. The door is locked again on his way out. Hours later, he is just climbing into bed when there is a short rap upon his front door. By the time he opens it, all there is to greet him is a plain cardboard box. Within it he finds an antique surgical kit, recently restored to shining condition. There is a note attached. Thank you for your help, it reads, followed by the name Ezra and a single X. Neighborly is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Today's house was written by Andrew Mercator and edited by Matthew O.K. Smith, with music by Alex Schwartz and art by Cloudy Apple Art. The narrator is voiced by Matthew O.K. Smith. Angelo is voiced by Meep Mercator. To find out more, visit neighborlypod.card.co or follow us on social media at neighborlypod. If you enjoyed listening today, information on how you can support us will be included in the episode description. Most of all, we would appreciate it if you told a friend, because they might tell a friend, and they might tell a friend. And who knows? Eventually, God might finally listen to us. Today's collection bag is for charity. How nice. Hmm, hard to tell which charity. We're asking for bones and teeth for our bones and teeth drive. And there's a clip art of some sort of bone car and an action bubble that says today exclamation point. Consider donating. It's for a good cause. Thanks for listening. Come back soon.